Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller, and today I'm here on my own. This is a little solo episode of Simplify. You may be able to hear in my voice that I've been sick. It is the season, the cough is among us, but I'm here anyway because I wanted to give you a really, really lovely episode with Stephen Petro, who is an author and a columnist. You may have seen him in Salon, the New York Times, or on bookshelves everywhere. And this interview that we did a couple of weeks back, and for those of you who celebrate the holidays that are coming up soon, it's kind of the perfect interview, and his book is really great for the season that we're about to coast into. So Stephen's book is called Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, and it started as a list of stuff that he was keeping as he took care of his aging parents, and it turned into an article, and then it turned into a book a book whose agenda is to make people aware of how we are shortening our own lives and depreciating the quality of them as we get older and what we might do instead so that we're enjoying the best quality of life, have the most gratitude, the most good friendships, and that we can approach change with equanimity as we age. And I think it's a really nice pick for right now because, well, if you're lucky enough to have aging family members... And if you were lucky enough to be aging yourself, you are probably going to encounter some of these people, even if that person is just yourself in the mirror in the near future. So without any further ado, let's have a listen to the interview and have an ear out for how you might improve the quality of your life as you start racking up years. Just something that I wanted to flag here really quick before you hear the interview. There's a little bit of mic interference on Steven's side. There's a little bit of scrapey sounding stuff going on. It can be a little bit uh, distracting. I'm really sorry about that. We've made it sound as good as we can. Um, The interview is still really worth listening to. So hang in there. I don't think it's too bad and I think it's worth it. Okay, enjoy. Hi, Steven. Thanks for joining me today. It is my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. So you are an author. You are a columnist uh, for the Washington Post and the New York Times and uh, USA Today, many, many different places. But how is it that you like to be introduced? It's a really interesting question. I don't usually get the the opportunity to do that. Well, I, I like what I have on my Facebook and my Instagram page, which is some variant of Son, uncle, writer, and dog dad. You know, I guess actually over the last several years, I have been really thinking about my identity less about in terms of the professional accomplishments and more about the personal, which I think is also part of a shift that one starts to go through navigating midlife and into you know that next chapter. There's a great book, Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks, which talks about, you know, how we do that and how, you know, kind of ask the question when we get to the end, do I want to be known as a senior vice president of this or that? Do I want to be known as a best-selling author? Do I want to be known as a, as a good uncle and as a caring person and so on? So that, that's my answer, which probably doesn't really help listeners to, you know, in establishing any of my so-called credentials. So I will say, that you know, you mentioned some of the publications that I work for, and I'm the author most recently of Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, which is sort of a memoir and a manifesto about aging. Perhaps book author. <laughs> I love that. I love that that you brought up how it becomes increasingly important as the 
sort of sands of time tip from one end of the hourglass to the other that we become more interested in being known for whom we love and how we are in the world than what our professional titles are. When do you feel like that started for you? So I am now 66. I think that started about, you know, within the last five years, probably not before that. At, at that time, a lot of my identity was in sort of the external ways that, that people looked at me. And in that time, my parents died and my sister, who's younger than me, she died. And I think that also, um, you know, kind of changed how I look at myself and also how I changed what's important to me, you know, especially during my sister's illness, which, um, brother was really the label, the identity that I most loved and most focused on. And you said you're 66 and this book that you've written is called Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. What is old? Ah, what is old? <laughs> what is old? What do, you, what do you consider old? How do we, how do you define that? How do you find that, that people tend to? Well, I remember I did some interviewing about that question and and the, the general consensus was something along the lines of older than I am now, four years older than I am now, in the future, never, ever now. I think that reflects some of our challenges. It's a really interesting question because as much as we can say old begins at 65 when you're eligible for Medicare, and it's as much a part of our attitudes about ourselves and how we fit into the world, as well as something that is identifiable, and then, of course, if you look at the countries around the world, what we think of as old is, is much younger in many African countries. In Japan, it's a number that's higher than ours. And then even within the United States, if you go by zip code, which is tied to you know economic status, there's such great variance. So I guess the point that I do want to make is that old is what we make of it. And it is a slippery and sliding scale. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, there are many benefits to being older or old or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. I mentioned earlier when we were talking off recording that I lived in Europe for a long time. And one of the things that attracted me to making my home here rather than the U.S. was that people seemed to get what I had called at the tender age of like 26, old, quote unquote, much later. And when I lived in Spain, I would see women in their 50s and 60s still out at a bar with their friends, just dressed up and glowing and having fun and being social. And I didn't see a lot of that in the U.S. for women in their 50s and 60s, at least not where I grew up in New England. That was definitely an eye opener for me because I thought, ah, getting old, quote unquote, is something that you choose. It's not necessarily a thing that you have to do in a way that society prescribes. That is very true. We have a lot of preconceived notions about what it means to become 65, 70, 75, or even 45 or 50. And part of the challenge is that many people sort of adopt these attitudes and start to feel that they need to restrict themselves in certain ways. And I talk in the book, it's one of my favorite chapters, it's the organ recital. You, know, you get together a group of uh, 50 plus people and they spend the first 10 or 15 minutes talking about everything that's wrong with them, from aches and pains to this and that, some of the more serious. But the more we define ourselves by those ailments, we start to think of ourselves as those ailments. And that's where we get into trouble. And that's where actually studies show us that it's called internalized ageism. 
that can foreshorten our lives by as much as seven and a half years. So partly what I'm trying to do in this book is make people aware, make ourselves aware of how we do that, how we absorb these messages, and then make better choices about how we think about ourselves and and others in our cohorts. Yeah. So that's part of what you were trying to do with this book. But actually, I really like the story of how you came to this book. Can you just give us a little bit of background on where this book came from? I know that a seed of it was in an essay that you wrote for the New York Times that was hugely popular. I think of the same title. But then how did the book happen? So actually, before the essay, I was always taking notes. I was always writing about our family. And so as my parents got older, and we're talking in their 70s here, I just started keeping a list of the things that I thought they could do better than they were. But what I found after the essay was published that, yes, it was among the most popular for a couple of weeks, but I received similar lists from about 200 readers who were doing the exact same thing. And they felt guilty. I felt guilty. They were very honest. They were funny. But in in many ways, what we were all trying to do was to see, well, how can we live a little more gracefully, how can we live better than the generation that comes before us, which is pretty much true of every generation. And, you know, when you write down things, you're kind of making a promise or a pledge to yourself. And maybe later on, we can get to like, how well or how not so well I have done in keeping with my things I won't do, because I've learned it's a lot easier to write about than to live. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the truth of pretty much everything? (laughs) 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 Pretty much. But yeah, because I was in my early 50s when I started writing this list. So that's about 15 years ago now. What was the earliest thing on that list? I am thinking that it was a silly one in a certain way. It was that I won't double space after a period. I grew up, my, my grandmother was my typing teacher and everyone who learned on a typewriter learned to double space. You don't need to do that now on a computer. That wasn't really the point though of that chapter. The point was we need to find ways not to be afraid of technology and to adapt to it and to use it so that we can stay in communication, connection with people we care about. And so it was about how we adapt to changing circumstances. But of all the chapters also, that became the most controversial because people are very attached to their double spaces. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just an automatic movement, I imagine. It's, it's a habit. You know, we get in our habits, we get in our ruts and We're not even aware of them, which is the first problem. So, you know, becoming mindful of them, you know, helps. And then, okay, so now what do I do? Well, now I need to try to change. The worst. (laughs) The worst, I know. (laughs) But, you know, change is our friend. Absolutely. And you have this beautiful chapter on intergenerational friendships. The title is, I Won't Limit Myself to Friends My Own Age. And you make some really strong arguments about the importance of intergenerational friendships. Do you have some advice on how to cultivate those and and how to bridge gaps there? And just what are your thoughts? So when I was around 40, I met a woman who became my landlord and then eventually became a very close friend. And she was 77 when I met her. So we had almost 40 years between us. And Denise Kessler was her name. She was in a sense a role model for me. She was very active in life. She was in political protest. She copied the local newspaper. She was with a sort of all-girl group of cheerleaders that went to parties and um, it just had, you know, a very full life with many folks younger than her. And I was among them. And I just saw 
so much benefit in having that kind of friendship and that exposure. And then over time, we came to talk about it. And of course, she was very sort of purposely cultivating a younger, a younger set of friends. But it was really, it was really more than that. It's about how do we keep ourselves exposed to you know, new ideas, new ways of thinking about what's happening in the world and the culture, so on and so forth. And since then, I've tried to sort of have friendships with people who are older than me and friendships with people who are younger than me. And I find them especially gratifying. And in a way, there's certain characteristics that are not demographic-based, but they, they constitute what's called a perennial. So we kind of get rid of the millennial or the boomer and, and those types of labels. But anybody can be a perennial of any age. And those are the characteristics of a perennial. Are, you know, you're curious, you're engaged, you're open, you're trying to stay connected. So I really like that concept of being a perennial rather than belonging to my specific baby boomer cohort. I also wanted to talk a little bit about something less pleasant than intergenerational friendships, and that's ageism. And you also are, you're known as a civilist and speak about civility and how we should treat each other. And ageism is really not a feature of a civil kind society, but where do you see ageism popping out? And what do you wish that people did differently so as not to discriminate against older people? Well, it's really interesting when we talk about civility, and if we're talking about discrimination as well, and we very quickly and rightfully include race and ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, so on and so forth. They're categories that we know. We never include age in that. So it's kind of become one of the remaining territories that there are no rules about speaking ill of older people. And we make fun of them. If we're not absent in the media, then we're kind of portrayed often in silly or stupid ways, like they can't use their devices, they're afraid of travel, they can't hear, you know, all these sort of negative attributes that are, they're stereotypes. And there may be a kernel of truth in, in most stereotypes, but they're not really the defining characteristics. And so I think we need to become more aware of how all of us are ageist, to varying degrees, and those who are younger are more likely to be ageist upward. And I have to say, I have come to see how I am ageist looking downward. For instance, I had someone assigned to me at my financial institution who's probably just out of college and he's definitely in his 20s. And I was thinking to myself, gee, this person doesn't know anything. Now, this person was hired by the bank. It was a competitive situation, and it turns out, Stephen, he knows plenty, but he was 25. I had to sort of reevaluate my own understanding here of how ageism can be a two-way street. So we all need to be aware of the stereotypes we bring into how we look at others, and then, I would argue, understand people for who they are rather than how old they are. Mm, right, what their age bracket is. Um. I wanted to ask you, this is not explicitly in your book, but so much of the material that you gathered, maybe most of the material that you gathered, came from seeing your parents through difficult times in their lives, watching them age, picking up on the nuances of how they were changing. Do you have any advice for people in their 40s or in their 50s who are beginning to care for their elderly parents? I do. And one of the challenges I had as a son 
was talking to my parents about many of these things that were going on, they were kind of um, allergic to it. And I was kind of apprehensive. And I think also probably all of us have this notion, well, if you talk, if you start to talk about it, you're going to make it real. But if other, if you don't talk about it, you can pretend that it's not real. I've tried in the book to open doors so that we can start talking earlier with each other about these things that matter. And when I was on book tour or when I am talking to audiences, I often have people come up to me and say, thank you. This book helped me talk either to my you know, adult kids about what's going on with me or from the so-called adult kids. Thank you for allowing me to find ways to talk to my mom or my dad about these. I think those kind of conversations are important for a number of different reasons. Again, how do we communicate? How do we connect with each other? But also sort of starting to establish, you know, safe places, becoming vulnerable with each other and, and making these conversations real in a way that we can also be present for each other. Because I think that's really a goal that almost all of us have in the end. How do we be present to the people we care about? Yeah. The last question that I wanted to ask you was, I guess that, I don't know if you'll have any new answers to it because you just gave a nice one, but I was going to say that we live so much longer now than we used to as a species. And then what should we start doing now to improve our personal futures? And if that is just maximize the resources now, then that's great. I think I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction with that. So generally, yes, that is true. Life expectancies, once we sort of factor out the COVID stuff, which has decreased life expectancy, you know, have increased tremendously in the last century. But I think about my sister, who I mentioned, died in June, and she was just 61. But one of the lessons I took away from her was she did not live the longest life or a a life that was long enough for me or her and the rest of her family. But she lived a very full life within those 61 years. And, And she was focused on that her whole life. It wasn't just when she became ill. She wanted to sort of live a big, full, exciting life. And she was endlessly curious. I mean, she was a perennial by definition. And so in many ways, I've come around to think it's not about how long we live, but it is how well we live. And all of those life expectancy targets are medians. So some of us are going to get there. Some of us are not. Some of us are are going to surpass them. So How do we live today in the way that maximizes the relationships that we have, our time here, what matters to us? And, you know, in Julie's case, I think she really came to an early understanding of of what mattered to her. And interesting, you know, when you asked me at the very beginning to introduce myself, I, I didn't use my professional accolades. I used some personal ones. And when my sister was asking me, or my actually my sister was dictating to me her obituary before she died. She said, well, I'm not starting with the professional. I'm starting with what matters to me, which was her wife and her girls and her brothers and her friends. And um, and she was just very sure of all that. And I think that's a great lesson for me and for others. What matters most? What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want? <laughs> what do you want the sentence on your tombstone to say? <laughs> uh so we had such a hard time with our parents. So I'm, so we wound up for my dad, professor and journalist. So that's how he identified himself. And then I think for my mother, beloved by all, wow. very, very different. 
Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I guess I would like some combination of the two, but I would like to lean more towards my mom's way of understanding and Mm. how we understood her. So beloved by a good handful. I like that. (laughs) It's humble. It's attainable. (laughs) Stephen, it was really lovely talking with you. I usually ask, do you have any books you've read recently that you really love and you'd recommend? Well, there is a book by Julius Toronto. It's a novel and it's called How I Won a Nobel Prize. And Julius did not win a Nobel Prize, but it's a really, it's a great read. It's just coming out in a couple of weeks. I'm reading Ann Patchett's new book, Tom Lake, which I'm really enjoying. And my good friend Daniel Wallace had a book published in the spring, which I read then, and it is called This Is Not Going to End Well, and it is a memoir. So those are three that come to mind that that I enjoy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Then I I guess that for now, I'm almost reluctant to let you go. It's been so nice to speak with you. And thank you so much for your time today. Well, you're welcome. And and I hope next year when my book about joy comes out that we might be able to reconnect. I would love that. Let's definitely do that. The things that I'm taking away from this interview are the importance of intergenerational friendships and how they can really prepare us for what our futures look like and how if we're already a little bit, um, let's say, up in years, that's one of those terrible euphemisms that people use for age. But if we're already on the older side, how wonderful it can be to have a friend who is in a younger age bracket and, you know, can keep us abreast of things that we might not be exposed to in the world that are new. I also really loved his uh, denomination perennial, um, a person who really spans all the ages and who can encompass a lot of different attitudes that are ordinarily associated with different ages. I also think it's really important that we think about ageism and the ways in which we might have internalized ageism. It's really everywhere from the way that we're sold beauty products. If you want to hear more about that, go back to my episode with Elise Hugh. And the way that we see people advertised in commercials who might not be able to use their cell phones or don't know how to understand emojis because they are, quote, old. Ageism really is everywhere. And it's in ourselves, too. It's in the way that I talk to myself when I look in the mirror. And it's in the way that I think about my future when my knees creak as I sit. And I really liked this takeaway. Stephen says that it's really important for people to understand people for who they are not how old they are. So I have this theory. Here's the part where it gets a little silly. I have this theory that we all kind of have a set age, an age that we've felt like since we were very, very young. My age is about 35. I've kind of always felt 35. And um, I'm wondering, what is your set age? Do you have one that you feel like all the time? Let me know. You can email me at podcast at Blinkist.com. I'm very curious to hear. And that is it for this episode recap. And I will just say there's a really, really great book. Um, Here's my recommendation for further reading if you would like to go a little bit deeper into the topic of age and specifically wisdom. There's a book. It's on Blinkist. It's by Dilip Jesty with Scott Lafee, and it's called Wiser, The Science of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. So what is wisdom? How are wise people different? What is it about people who are wise that makes them so special? This book looks into science to attempt to tell us. 
Um, it breaks down the key components of wisdom. It shows how they are found in human biology, and it gives you some tips on how to become wiser faster. This book kind of blew my mind a little bit, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of stuff about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, which I'm really into. Give me all the brain science. Um, but even if you're not, it's really interesting to hear about things like how brain activity begins to shift from the back of the brain to the front of the brain as we age, which means that we're able to make slower decisions and come from a place of more compassion. And then this really shocked me. Old people remain just as sensitive to uplifting stimuli, but because the amygdala becomes less responsive as we age, they are actually less responsive to upsetting stimuli or information. And that just means that they experience fewer lows in response to the world, but just as many highs, which is pretty cool. Something to look forward to, right? Okay, that's it for me. Um, I will be back in a couple of weeks with a little bit more. We have some really good interviews in the can, so stay tuned for that. And catch you next time. So Simplify is produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Maria Levichik, and Stefan Obadia here at Blinkist. If you would like to try Blinkist, you can do that for free for 14 days. If you go to Blinkist.com slash friends and enter in the discount code Petro, P-E-T-R-O-W. Okay, take care. That's it for me. Checking out. 